So we got a special guest on this pivotal episode, and one that did something that I would say most of us would think is a little bit crazy, and he can probably explain to you a little bit more, but he actually ate just convenience store gas station food for 30 days. But who I'm talking about, if you don't recognize the person on the other side of this connection, this is Frank Beard. He is the director of special projects currently at C-Store Decisions, which is an industry publication for the convenience channel. He's also a director at Safe Shop. Before that, he was an analyst at Gas Buddy. And You'll probably mostly see his information, thought leadership across a ton of different industry publications that I'm probably not doing him at all justice on his bio. So I'm going to turn it over to Frank and hopefully he can fill in a lot of the gaps that I, I kind of missed on there. No, I, I mean, you pretty much touched on on everything there. Um, so I'll just mention a few things real quick, though. Um, yeah, Safe Shop is something I joined up with recently, and I was particularly excited about. I mean, most of the presentations I've done in the industry over past two, three years have just been focused on the topic of customer experience. And, um, you know, with regard to store safety, there's a class of convenience retailers that um, took that extremely seriously before the pandemic are going to take it seriously afterward. And honestly, we just saw a huge need to recognize and kind of give them, you know, the, you know, just the seal of approval of third party verification to help them tell people, yeah, like we actually take this really seriously. Um, you know, it's not going to be for everyone. It's going to be for the best in class retailers, but, um, I think it's exciting. I mean, I would find that information valuable as a customer. So, um, it was easy for me to get personally involved and um, also involved with C-Store Decisions, which is exciting. Um, you know, they're good. They're a great publication. And I was really happy to jump on the team and help them grow. But yeah, to the point about eating uh, convenience for food for 30 days. Um, yeah, that's not really normal behavior. Um, it might be if, you know, you live in Tokyo and you've got the amazing convenience stores they have. Um, but here in the United States, there's the stigma of the dirty gas station that we're, we all uh, know too well. The thing is, it's not entirely accurate. Um, the, you know, the industry has really evolved away from that, uh, that stigma. It just takes time for, you know, that to be reflected in popular culture, I suppose. But fact is, I actually had a really easy time finding healthy food. Um, even the stores that maybe were a little behind the curve, um, I mean, you can at least get some mixed nuts, sparkling water. Um, I mean, bananas are in almost every convenience store at this point. So even when it was difficult, I was able to find something. But really with that, though, to be honest, uh, I just wanted to dispel that whole myth about eating on the go being the proverbial problem. It's just not true. Um, you know, making unhealthy choices is the problem. And I guess what I saw is um, a lot of people who would just feel like failures as they would try to transition to a healthier life because maybe they're going out to eat with their coworkers or, um, you know, maybe you're a salesperson and you, and you travel a lot, so you're not home and you can't cook as much. I just, I just thought I would add something to the conversation on this and show people, Hey, I'll track all my calories. I'll eat at convenience stores and I'll show you that I'm perfectly fine. I love that because I think that's taking it kind of to the extreme because to your point, when you're a traveling business person or you're just out of your normal routine, you always default to maybe like the easiest thing possible. And for a lot of people that might be a convenience store, fast food or whatever, but even within any of those options, you can pick something that's better for you or healthier than other options. Now it might not be as good as the most extreme or best option out there out of all the available things we have in America, but 
there's always something that you could do to pick something better. Um, wanted to ask you because we had had a conversation before around um, the convenience channel and just like you know, why you pick the convenience channel because I think there's so many different spaces. Like I focus a lot around grocery and I focus a lot around like the digital channel and mostly in the context of CPG and where those things are being mostly sold at. But I also have myself, I have a personal story around convenience channel because when I was growing up, my dad actually owned a marathon station, a gas oh, station, yeah. and it was an independent um, convenience store. So it wasn't attached to any banner. And it also had a few like mechanic uh, car shop bays as well. That's what he was, but he, it just so happened the building had those things attached. So growing up, I ran the convenience store in some senses. As I grew up, I, I ran more parts of it, but I remember stocking shelves and I remember, you know, running the cash register and, and doing all those types of things. So I still have like a super special place in my heart for convenience stores. Every time I go in, I still like see things and I'm like, Ooh, you know, Oh, they're missing on this or they're missing on that. But <laughs> I wanted to you know, kind of ask you like why out of kind of anything you could have focused on, because obviously your thought leadership crosses all over the place. Like why so much focus on like convenience stores and gas stations? Yeah, it's, um, as you well know, it's an area that a lot of retail people, um, tend to ignore and don't pay a lot of attention to. Um, I guess what, I guess as, as I got more into this industry, um, it's just interesting. It's a very quirky industry and it's probably cliche to say this, but it's just full of interesting people. It's, um, you know, it's an industry, it's incredibly fragmented, approximately two thirds are still single stores. Um, you meet a lot of interesting entrepreneurs who just, you know, don't feel, don't feel, uh, burdened or, um, I guess, kind of boxed in by concepts of what a convenience store is, you know, people who constantly push the boundaries, you know, you see stores like El Carajo in Miami, where it's a high end tapas restaurant, uh, and you know, you're you can basically buy wine from a private collector there. It's, there's literally nothing like it. I think I've had, uh, I think I'd seared filet and, um, fried octopus last time I was there. And this is, this is in a convenience store and, um, or places like high country market and gastropub and, uh, uh, actually not too far from you over in round rock, um, owner of that, uh, that's basically the destination for fine wine in central Texas and just a neighborhood hangout. I mean, he literally imports truffle oil from Italy and puts it in his ketchup because that's the attention to detail his food has. So you see things like that, but, um, I got into this through completely non-traditional ways. Um, as I started doing this 30 days of gas station food experiment, I was working in another industry. I wanted out of it. It's not what I wanted to be doing, which is a very long story, but, um, I, uh, I noticed right away that this, this thing started getting a lot of attention and I didn't know what I'd quite tapped into, but the more that I started, um, you know, doing some speaking in the industry and talking about this experiment, I started to realize that I'd actually kind of stumbled upon two things that were really valuable for me. One is I had actual on the ground experience visiting retailers all over the United States, rural, suburban, urban, um, literally everywhere. And as I got to know people at a lot of the retailers, you find out that they actually don't get to do that. Um, you know, you're working nine to five, 10 to six, whatever, uh, long hours. The last thing you want to do after leaving the office is go visit all these retailers or go travel to see retailers. Um, and I was in these stores five days a week traveling around the United States for my other job, uh, that I had at the time. So 
um, I started to get a really good sense of just what the industry actually looks like from a consumer's perspective everywhere. And then the other thing is, um, I was bringing in a perspective that wasn't biased having worked at a retailer for 10 years and, you know, um, sort of thinking that maybe their way of doing things and their perspective on things is the default or the end all be all. So, um, you know, brought a fresh perspective to things and that's at least what I was told. So I just decided to run with it. And the more I got involved with this industry, it's, uh, the more, the more I enjoyed it. It's, it's a fun space. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think to your point, like every single convenience store that you go into, even sometimes if they're in the same banner, can be different. Um, and that's mm -hmm. a lot of times if it's franchised and that owner has, you know, maybe some outside specialty, be that from the food side or be that from just, you know, how he sees merchandising and the way that he likes to present his store. So I, I do think that there is an interesting or quirky point um, to those stores, uh, wanted to transition to, you know, arguably the, the biggest thing of 2020 and, and with just COVID and, and how it's affected some of the, uh, sales channels. I think the convenience channel has arguably been affected the most. Um, and I think initially it was felt in one way just because of consumer mobility being at a standstill. And then now you're seeing a totally different shift going on as well. And I wanted to get your perspective because you know the space a lot more than I do, just what you're seeing from your side of like, just all the changes, the adaptations that have happened because of COVID. Yeah, so that's a really good question because um, the fuel and convenience industry is historically built around routine, you know, the consumer routine of commuting to work. Um, you know, these stores are positioned on the prime corners and intersections of basically every town in the United States. Um, so if people aren't driving, that's going to make, it's going to make an impact. Um, I, I tend to look at it this way. So, um, I'll share these links with you if, if you want to put them in the, in the description, if anyone's curious, but, um, co-authored a few articles with a buddy of mine, who's a data scientist and fuels consultant. And we had just been talking for months this summer about what, um, what COVID was really doing to the industry. And we settled on this idea of COVID-19 effectively being a dress rehearsal. Um, even before the pandemic, we knew that fuel demand at some point was going to decline. Um, I mean, the cars are getting increasingly fuel efficient. The internal combustion engine has so much life left in it. Um, I, I mean, there's some pretty stark projections about how much fuel economy is going to improve by 2040. Uh, I, I mean, I just took a few notes here. I'll, I mean, there's a recent report that was showing how the U.S. Energy Information Administration, they're forecasting a 47% improvement in light duty fleet economy by 2040 and a 30% improvement in diesel. Um, it's essentially, we're at a point where uh, fuel consumption is decoupled from vehicle miles traveled. So we knew that was kind of coming. And then whatever the adoption scenarios look like for electrification, that's a concern too. So the point is COVID effectively kind of simulated some of these conditions by leading to a drop in fuel customers and a drop in customers inside the store. I don't think everyone is getting this message though, because a couple things happened. One is... Um, crude oil crashed and margins have been great. So that really helped not only uh, dampen the blow a little bit, but in some cases like really reward folks. Um, at the same time, you've had stock up behavior inside the store. Um, I mean, I even see it myself. If I go get a couple sugar-free energy drinks, maybe instead of buying two of them for that day, um, I'll just buy like 
four or six of them and then come back another time. So retailers are really kind of helped out by that. But um, I think right now the stock up behavior, at least from the data I've seen, is starting to uh, go away a little bit, although it'll be curious to see what happens this winter because obviously we're all seeing in our states uh, a rise in cases right now. Um, definitely a more serious situation than it was in March and April. So I guess it remains to be seen what happens there. But really, I think what retailers need to be asking themselves is, okay, take away the stock up behavior, take away the fuel margins. Were you prepared to thrive in this environment or are you just treading water? That's really the question that needs to be asked. Um, and even if you look at like the uh, restaurant industry, you can see kind of a similar scenario playing out. The quick service restaurants are killing it with their drive-throughs. Uh, the fact that many of them had you know, uh, embraced off-premise solutions uh, prior to the pandemic, whereas casual dining chains, uh, you know, full-service restaurants, I mean, they're they're having a harder time with this because, I mean, they're just based around a dining room. So you can see um, on one hand, you have a segment of that industry that was positioned to satisfy demand during a time like this and another that wasn't. And I think for fuel and convenience, what it raises the question of is, are you a retailer that was just trying to siphon traffic off the work commute and sell them fuel and then try to lure a couple people in for some candy bars and Pepsis and Cokes? Or are you a destination store that can drive visits with a solid product offer and a good customer experience? You look at a company like Casey's General Stores or Wawa Sheets. I mean, with or without fuel, people are going to go to those stores because they have incredible food. That's that's my interpretation of this. I think this has really raised the importance of having a strong differentiator and not just being a generic retailer. In fact, I think the market is going to lose a lot of the space for generic retailers, and they're going to struggle if they don't differentiate their product offer and their customer experience. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in, in, in the sense of your first point around it being a dress rehearsal, I've often said that you know, COVID's not necessarily creating any new trends, at least that any of us can see today, all they are doing is accelerating already like kind of existing kind of nascent early trends that maybe most people that don't look forward or don't lean forward haven't really noticed that much. But this is really bringing it to the spotlight and saying, wow, hey, this is what the reality of the future looks like. This is your chance to take it as a real opportunity to make changes in your business or to your point. You're going to look at it and go, ah, we're going to go back to normal. I'm fine. Or there's some type of puts and takes that actually, you know, provide them just as good of a margin or profitability. And they're not watching some of the more like secular trends that are happening. And they're going to be ending up getting caught up into something where they're going to get blindsided when it really happens. Say the virus, you know, kind of goes in hibernation, you know, great. And we get a vaccine and we get, you know, some of those things going and people do start to act as if they did because it hasn't been years where they still do remember how they used to act. Then a lot of these are going to get caught in that trap because they're going to think, wow, that was just a speed bump. We're back on track. We're good to go. And we're just never going to need to look at that stuff again. Um, I think it's probably the opposite of what I just mentioned of like, you know, we're going to be in a one and a half, two year um, of this reality that we're dealing with a pandemic slash endemic. And we're really get to like the light of the end of the tunnel. We're going to forget what the old normal was. We're just going to be acting in some semblance of what, how we've been acting. And I think that's going to cause kind of a lot of problems for the people, as you said, that aren't thinking about this as a really big 
point of importance, this is the defining moment, I guess you could say, to transition your business into the future. If they're not thinking like that, then they're going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely on that. And I get it. Like, we're all tired of hearing, you know, all these vendors and suppliers and people hitting me up with the t- 10 webinar invites every day, talking about the new normal and trying to slip a sales pitch in there. I get it. We're, I think we're all tired of those discussions, but it is an absolute fact that um, even as, even as some of you know those uh, early pandemic behaviors roll back a little bit, we're still going to be left further ahead than we were on these on many of these trends. Um, I mean, I think I even see this in my own behavior. You know, not to say that I can generalize about everybody off of that, but I don't know about you, but I never really embraced mobile payments and stores until this. Um, I guess to be honest, a part of it was I got tired of chips not working on some of the readers, and so I just decided to go with Google Pay, but. Um, and I don't know, maybe I didn't want to touch as many keypads, but I got to say, I mean, I, I that's what I look for when I go to a store now is the ability to pay that way because it's just so incredibly convenient. And I think, you know, a lot of these uh, behaviors that were accelerated be- concerns, they're going to stay when people understand how convenient it is. Um, you know, someone who just started buying groceries on Instacart or through a grocer's own delivery uh, platform, they might they might roll back a little bit and go into a smaller store or, you know, see a grocery store is a great chance to get out of the house if they haven't been going anywhere this year. But at the same time, they're probably going to still order groceries more than they would have otherwise. And um, it's, it, yeah, it, it just really accelerated this. And I think people need to stop asking when it's going to get back to normal and just ask, well, what does this mean for me right now? Um, because a lot of this isn't going to go away. Yeah, I think you and I, as you know, kind of leaning as analysts or strategists uh, in terms of the way we think, a lot of times it comes down to like counterpunching some of these really big macro trends. It's like, I'm not going to be able to affect on a very micro level how, you know, to fight against this wave, but I can use that wave to my advantage. So I always think, okay, there's going to be a, a stickiness level. It's not going to be a hundred percent that everybody's going to continue to act that way. But even if it's 20%, 30%, 40 what does that mean? And you have to kind of run it through the whole system and say, okay, this affects all these different things. Should I put the same value on those things or should I change the way that I deal with these things? And how, you know, for me with working with the clients and, and thinking, how do I position them to use those as propellants or accelerants in their business over having to fight the wave constantly? Since we're kind of talking about just like, you know, new normal or, you know, what's the future going to be like, where are you kind of seeing uh, some of the next uh, life? Like, where do you think some of like the real forward looking um, gas stations and convenience stores are starting to invest in? Yeah. So that's a good question because um, one thing I want to throw out to kind of preface my comments on this, um, it can get... When you when you talk about convenience or is it in general, folks have to remember it's a very large industry, more than 152,000 stores just in the United States. And in the past few years, I, I think there's been a real divergence in um, the business models. Um, this is something I uh, wrote, a, you know, the article I co-authored that I mentioned. We had touched on this uh, briefly in there. It's if you look at the headlines, you could be forgiven for thinking all convenience stores are moving into food service, that all convenience stores are you know, trying to create a QSR style offer, but that's not actually entirely true. There's a segment of the industry that is most definitely, but that's not what everyone's doing. And 
I look at it this way. You've got three sort of prime business models that are splitting off uh, in their own ways. You've got the QSRs, of course, the, the Sheets and the Wawas of the world, the Mavericks, uh, companies, I would put Bucky's if anyone's in, <laughs> well, yeah, you're in Texas. So, um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm clearly a huge fan, yeah. but uh, that's my coaster, my energy drinks on. But yeah, so they're, but they're a good example. You go to Bucky's to eat. Um, so they're all, they're splitting off in the in the food service direction, building stores that can uh, drive a tremendous amount of traffic into the point of Bucky's. I mean, they don't even put the price of gas on their pile on because, quite frankly, no one cares. Yeah. They know they're going to get a good deal, and that's not their prime reason that they're going to Bucky's. They're going for other things. Yeah. Same with Sheets, Wawa, all that. Um, but on the other hand, you've got the consolidators. Consolidators, the Circle Ks of the world, the 7-Elevens, GPM Investments, EG Group companies like that, they're effectively taking the, the traditional convenience store model that sometimes gets jokingly referred to as smokes and cokes. They'll upgrade it a little bit, but they're not chasing the QSR style model. They're, they're taking the older model and they're scaling it. They're just chasing economies of scale. Super efficient, smart companies that um, will run those very effectively and have a lot of data behind them. They can, you know, spend on more sophisticated things, but then you've got the merchant canopies, you know, anyone who wants to compete on price, the merchant canopies are just going to run them to the bottom. The AGBs of the world, the fleet farms, the Costco's, they don't, I mean, they technically don't have to make money on gas. They have a mega store parked behind it. So that's kind of what you have. What this has done is everyone else that hasn't picked a lane is kind of stuck in this red ocean, just without clear competitive advantages. So what one area I'm really focused on is what's this mean for the small retailers, the small chains, the single store guys? I think what it means is they need to execute stronger on fundamentals and they need to develop a strong brand identity. Um, there, there's a lot of smaller retailers that effectively run a similar store to what the consolidators have, but they don't have the advantages that they have. That's a problem. Um, what they need to do is they need to sort of be the industry standard bearers for customer experience, you know, create something unique that you don't get anywhere else, have a strong brand identity, but then create a product, something that is their differentiator. And you see this play out all the time. Um, the, some of the smaller stores I've mentioned already, they do this, uh, El Carajo. It's a, it's a fancy restaurant inside a convenience store. Um, a good example is, uh, you can look it up on Twitter, uh, Lou, uh, Lou Perini's in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's a family-owned store that's been in this family for decades. They have a iconic product called Ho-Ho Cake, which is a family recipe. They put crazy humor online. Uh, it, it's There's just nothing like it. Um, it's not enough to be a generic retailer. I do, because here's, here's what's going on. Um, the products that the generic retailers are selling, that's a form of convenience that makes sense when you're there pumping gas. But I don't know if the Cokes and Pepsis of the world are enough to get me to drive to a store. And also those are the products that um, I think the incentives are lined up for the CPG companies to try to figure out direct to consumer and to try to make some money off of that. Uh, the you know, the go puffs of the world are going to deliver those very same products to your door in 30 minutes or less. And then of course, you've got companies like DoorDash that are looking at a, disinterme a disintermediation strategy clearly by just creating their own dark store and competing with their convenience store partners. So it's like, I just think you've got to have something more if you want to win in this, in, in this next decade. Um, you've, you've, You've got to have you've got to have a brand that that can stand on its own and does something that's worth driving to if you want to convince a person to go to a store. I was going to say, I mean, it's crazy those comments um, can resonate across every single sector, every single business. Like, 
I always laugh because when I talk to people that are super focused and super in tune with what's happening in their spaces, when you start to get into the conversations, they seem like they are like the other. Everything is the same because if you ask me the same thing about you know, CPG brands or grocery stores, specialty like uh, retailers or just retailers in general, or we talk about restaurants, or, you know, there's the aspect of low cost, you know, consolidation, economies of scale, um, the cheapest thing possible, which will always have a market. And then you have the people that are focused on, you know, premium brand experience, you know, community aspects, you know, some differentiation that provides not necessarily that they're premium price, but just have a premium experience or premium aspect of their business that somebody takes time out of their day to go shop with them. Then you have this weird middle area where like, if you're in that space, you have a very short life cycle left to make a change. Where are you going to be? Odds are you can't go down to the bottom unless you're going to find a buyer to just consolidate you into somebody else. So then you have to, to your point, find that hook. What is that? You know, it could be as simple as if you're a convenience store and you're in a small town, like knowing everybody's name, they know you, they know your oh, kids. Yeah. Like there's a, that aspect of community and aspect of them, you know, old school kind of retailing that you go back into that, that still has a place. You know, it doesn't have to be something like super fancy and special. Sometimes it's just like shaking somebody's hand. You can't do that today, but like sh yeah. <laughs> shaking, somebody's hand, shaking somebody's hand and, um, you know, knowing their kids' names, you know, doing the local business thing where like you sponsor the local um, little league teams and like that stuff still works in a lot of small towns. I mean, that yeah. wouldn't work in these urban areas where I'm at, uh, but there are a ton of different ways to approach what you're talking about. And it's anybody listening says, regardless of what industry you work in, it's the same thing. If you really look at your space deeply, you'll see that it's happening every single space. Now, some have been getting hit much earlier than the pandemic and some are getting hit hard in the pandemic. Some are going to wait and maybe it'll hit them after the pandemic, but it's happening. You know, consumers are, very interesting creatures, I guess, like they pattern sequences, they all go into patterns and sequences. It doesn't necessarily mean that they act differently in each scenario. They're always acting the same. It just so happens that a lot of times we don't see it um, like right in front of our face like we do in some of the other industries. No, and and it's tough because like, I mean, what I'm talking about here, you know, there's 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 no step-by-step -step playbook for this. There's no silver bullet solution. It, it, it's just, um, I mean, the folks that have made extreme differentiation work in their stores very successfully, those are often stores that would not probably do very well outside of the markets that they're in because they've built an offer almost in conjunction with their community. Um, I mean, if anyone's in, you know, in Kansas City, you know, check out a place like Papu's Cafe. Um, it's not the fanciest convenience store, and but they execute so well on their food. Um, the owner was showing me the proprietary spice blends that he grinds himself. Um, I mean, he's got a, I could talk for an hour about that guy's history. It's just one of the coolest stores and it's, it's arguably the best Mediterranean food in the city. I, I used to live down there. Um, you know, but that, that stuff's unique. That's the kind of stuff that you would drive out of your way for. And I think there's a lot of retailers out there that have kind of gotten by with that generic store offer and because they've been rewarded for it for the past 10 years or whatever. But it's just there's some headwinds coming their way where you've you've just got to do something a little more to really stand out. And, you know, the generic product offer is available everywhere. I mean, I like I like Coke. I like Pepsi, you know, diet, diet Coke and diet Pepsi are um, 
great as far as I'm concerned. I like drinking those, but I can get those anywhere, um, literally anywhere. I can get those, you know, in a beverage cooler at a hardware store. It's that's not unique everyone has those. You just have to do something else. And, um, you know, it's interesting too, because, um, I pay a lot of attention just out of, just cause I'm curious about it to, um, department stores. And I was always fascinated by, um, a lot of these failing retailers that have disappeared over the last few years. Uh, my wife and I have a weird hobby of going into bankrupt retailers and visiting them and checking them out. And you look at a company like Sears, um, I mean, we don't have any left around here. And I went in the one that was by us in Des Moines at Merle Hay Mall before it shut down. And it just felt like stepping back into a time machine. You know, they 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 didn't pick a, uh, you know, a premium route. They didn't really pick a budget friendly route. It's just like it's like they didn't even know who they were. They just had just a couple items in nearly every product category. And there was really no reason to go there. I, I mean, if you wanted exercise equipment, they have like three or four things, but they don't have the diversity of products that you would expect to look at to make a decision. It's just, it felt like something from another time. And when you look at some of these retailers that are still running a generic offer, that's what it kind of feels like to me. And some of that's going to continue to work, but there's the variables that they rely on for success are very much subject to change over the next 10 years. And that's what I find concerning. Interesting here, just like the pulse of, of a lot of these small and sometimes unique or quirky um, convenience stores that you know the owners and, and you keep up with them. And they're thinking around some of the trends that are happening with some of the third-party delivery and just oh, yeah. also those um, companies now directly competing and kind of having that dual hybrid model as well. Um, because I remember even a few years ago reading some commentary um, on Nax or one of the industry publications talking about how you know that channel, the convenience channel, was insulated from the digital shift. You know, everybody should be fine. You're going to be fine. And not to say that it's the you know nail in the coffin. I think some of the things you mentioned before around just fuel efficiency, electrification, hydrogen vehicles, a lot of that happening in and not necessarily just with consumer vehicles, but with like large um, freight and that probably moving first because of, you know, just the cost savings and, and things that they can get in with autonomous vehicles. And, you know, we can kind of get into a, tons of different things like that. But I'm interested to hear if some of them are embracing it or do they think, you know, like I have some other differentiations, so I'm going to be fine because I've seen time and time again, I don't care how strong you think your business is, there is every single day a consumer chooses to not be a part of the existing yeah. business model where they were the you know default picker packer and last mile delivery driver like people know there's other options today and they know that they can buy back their time in a sense um and it's at a price that it makes sense to them so i'm interested to hear if like do they think this is still like i don't have to worry about it or is this something they go you know what i need to figure this out because I, this is my lifeline in the future. Yeah. Delivery is a huge topic of conversation right now. And, um, it's a couple of things that I'll say on that, you know, first off, I know exactly what you're saying about that sort of rhetoric around convenience stores being completely immune from the retail, the so-called retail apocalypse and a couple of things on that. Um, you know, one, America's just over retailed. We have way too much retail space. Yeah. I think I think we're all fully aware of that. Um, so it's very obvious why that's worked out poorly for some brands, not to mention just the bifurcation that's going on anyway. Um, you don't need a lot of people riding the middle with their product offer. You need you need to pick a lane. But with that said, the thing that 
I, I point out to people is, yeah, the convenience store industry has been insulated from this, but guys, your local mall never had a product like gasoline. I mean, I, I can function just fine without a Sears, and I've done so for quite a while. Uh, but I, and as much as it pains me to say, I can function without a Toys R Us, RIP. Um, you know, if anyone saw the, uh, the sign that said, I guess everyone's growing up, there's no more Toys R Us kids that went around Twitter. I found the artist and I've got a copy up here because <laughs> that was like my favorite brand as a kid. And I wanted that so bad, but, but still it pains me to say that people can function without that company today, but I can't function without gasoline or paying for the services of someone that is buying gasoline. It just is what it is. So yeah, that's going to make you resilient. But with that said, um, on top of the issues I brought up with electrification and fuel economy, there's also a risk that um, there's increasingly less of a reason to go to a convenience store. And delivery is a big part of that. Now, I don't think any one of these things is going to outright disrupt an entire industry, but they chip away a little here and then they chip away a little bit there until you know your sales are down 20 or 30% and you have to ask hard questions. With delivery, I think the problem is there is so much investment being poured into making last mile delivery incredibly convenient. Um, you look at a company like GoPuff. I've got that app on my phone. It works wonderful. Um, they, they do a great job. Uh, you see DoorDash um, doing you know their own disintermediation and doing their own dark stores. Um, I think the fear is that you could get to a point where the convenience store just doesn't feel convenient unless you're driving from point A to point B and you just need to stop and get something. Um, so that's a huge topic right now. What worries me um, is I think convenience stores were very late to the game. They took a wait and see approach prior to the pandemic with a few exceptions. And, you know, they got caught off guard. Um, everyone was and suddenly people didn't want to go in your store. So the incentives were lined up, I think, for them to partner with the third party platforms. And a lot of them, a lot of the bigger brands did so in March and April. Um, the problem with that is, OK, I understand why on a on a retailer by retailer basis, it makes sense to say, hey, let's turn on DoorDash. Uh, let's tap into the people making decisions within the conf you know, confines of that marketplace. And yeah, you might, you have to raise your prices to offset you know, their fees, but you might get some really positive results out of that. But okay, zoom out and look at this on a, on a, on a long, long enough time frame. What worries me is when you go to the Amazon Basics website, because to me, that's what the end game looks like. I don't think Amazon just happens to be passionate about selling indoor space heaters with wood, with wood grain panels on them. I think it's more likely they just identified a leader in a product category and copied it and put their own, put their own label on it. I mean, there's literally no reason why the third party platforms wouldn't do something like that. I mean, they have a marketplace view with the, with the data they have access to. Why do you need convenience stores to sell those products? Why not just do what DoorDash does, lease out warehouse space, create a virtual, you know, a digital brand and just bypass that. Um, that I think is the real fear. So I think retailers, honestly, maybe the future does involve a little bit of third-party partnership, but if they want to get into delivery, I feel like they need to be doing it themselves. And for everyone who says that, that's just not a good strategy. Well, I mean, Domino's does their own delivery and probably the best in the entire delivery business. They've been so for years. They're so good at that. Um, fortunately, there are some companies like Vroom, uh, Vroom Deliveries one. They basically put out the technology for retailers to just self-deliver. Um, every retailer I've talked to that uses it has had a lot of success. So hopefully that continues. Um, I just think, um, I don't know, they need to figure out something that doesn't involve just being another third-party delivery partner. I just think the future needs to be more sophisticated than that.
I think I heard just recently, it might have been the other day, uh, Lyft um, is taking a, a different approach to um, offering a solution to some of these retailers that uh, is different than Uber or different than Instacart or wherever, where they're not actually adding any of the interface. They really just want to be that delivery partner that just loops into whatever your solution is. And they obviously know that business extremely well and how to do that uh, probably better than than anybody, uh, arguably other than Uber. So it's mm-hmm. one of those things where I think there's going to be people that fit what you're talking about that are going to try to meet that need. Because if you are a small you know, convenience store in, in some small town, like it might be hard to find talent or find somebody that you can have, you know, be available for the 24 hours that you need coverage, um, like it is with a GoPuff or, or something like that. So you're going to need to use the, or tap into the gig economy. And, you know, maybe that is through somebody like Lyft. Um, before kind of end this conversation, I, I did kind of want to just make a little bit of a note around, you were talking about you know, convenience and, and I always, find that word to be interesting because I think that it's not a, let's say like a, a destination, like you'll never get to it. It, It's always moving. Um, so if you rest on your laurels, I guess, and I'm sure you see it, a lot of the stores do this is like, yeah, we, we offer the the goods that everybody wants and we offer the, the gas at the price that people want and we're on a really great location and that's all we need to do. But each day, convenience changes in the eyes of a consumer. You know, it was never that we needed to have packages same day or within two hours. We used to be okay with it being a week. Um, And then Amazon came around and said two days and then a bunch of people pushed them to one day and now we're at two hours. And sometimes two hours seems like it's crazy for us because GoPuff will do it in 30 minutes. So it's one of those things where for me, convenience is one of those like things you need to constantly be grasping. And if you can't answer the question like, am I truly fulfilling my word of being a convenience store and offering convenience, um, you need to constantly look yourself in the mirror, I guess, and and say, am I doing everything I need in the context of today's, um, I guess, definition of of convenience? Because what it was in the 90s or the 80s or even maybe two years ago um, doesn't really apply anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I've actually got got a bit of a story on that. So funny thing, this chair behind me here. uh, So I had bought this recently and, you know, we had to wait about, I don't know, four weeks to get it shipped into a local furniture store because, you know, again, COVID seems to have really messed up a lot of supply chains at the moment, but it gets here and the uh, legs weren't with it. Well, okay. I brought it in, looked under the cushion. There's no legs. I'm like, I've got to be missing something. So I go back to the local uh, branch of this furniture, furniture store chain and um, like, Hey, can you guys show me on the demo or, you know, where are the legs supposed to be? Cause I must be dumb. I'm, I'm totally missing this. And no, I, I guess it came without legs. So they told me um, I could either get a new chair uh, sometime next year, or they could have the legs sent out in maybe like four weeks or so. <sighs> I, okay, so I'm like, surely there's something, surely you can get legs somehow in some way quicker than four weeks. All right, but whatever. I got on Amazon and found essentially the exact same thing for $30, and it was on my doorstep in 22 hours. <laughs> And I know, you know, it's, they're, they're not Amazon. It is what it is. But I'm like, guys, I hate to tell you this, but it's like, that's the consumer expectation right now. Amazon will literally ship me some obscure category in 22 hours to Des Moines, Iowa that I was ordered on my cell phone, um, just in two minutes. 
it's that's what the expectations yeah. are and you're right convenience is always kind of an ever-changing uh endpoint or destination and you just got to stay aware of how consumer expectations are changing because if you don't meet those um you're just not relevant anymore and i think the past four or five years in retail in general have shown what happens when retailers lose their relevance you've seen brands that were some of the biggest companies period, just completely tank. And, uh, you know, you can read the news, you can read their uh, statements about it. And it just always seems wholly divorced from what it actually looks like at the store level. And I, I think retailers need to spend a lot of time in their stores rather than just, um, thinking about maybe what their, uh, company culture says about their stores or what they hear internally, you know, Sears, Sears is, is a great example, or even Macy's today, you know, they talk a big game in their statements, but you walk into Macy's and they've got clothes laying on the floor and empty shelves. And you're like, has anyone even looked at this? Like this, this isn't relevant. It, it, it's just, I think retailers have to be hyper-focused on understanding what does, what is this like for a consumer? I mean, if it's, if it's not convenient, if it's not relevant to consumers, um, God, you got to do something. You got to fix that. Yeah, totally agree. Well, Frank, I appreciate the conversation. Appreciate all the great points and conversation that you had for my audience. If people want to follow you, how could they do that? So um, fortunately, ZZ Top's drummer is not on the platforms I use, so I'm pretty easy to find uh, <laughs> since we share the same name. Um, you can find me on Twitter. It's at Frank Beard. Um, LinkedIn is probably what I use the most um, just because most people in our industry are there. Uh, find me also at Frank Beard on LinkedIn. And I also co-host a podcast called the Inconvenience Podcast. We're about to drop our next 10 episodes. Um, you can find that at inconveniencepodcast.com.